to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N, Tulsa.org. Well, um, hope that you've had a um, week of um, thinking through some of the things that Sujin brought out last week with hope. Um, uh, well, not week, last week, two weeks ago. Um, as we pulled up last week, um, uh, seeing that all electric was out and, and we were scrambling to uh, communicate to everyone whether we could meet or not. And then uh, Tyler and I were here, and then, but we couldn't get any texts out or any phone calls out. So we had to drive out to Tulsa Hills uh, to be able even to get the word out that, um, hey, we're, we're not having church. So it was another 20, 25 minutes. So we're sorry that it took a little while to get the word out. But, um, and I know many people in here uh, had their own homes affected by that. Um, electricity out and power is out. We had many friends that were like that. And it was great to see so many um, here, so many people that offered up, hey, if people need to come and stay, if people need to bring some of their refrigerated items, um, so uh, bring them, tell them to come to our place. And so it was great seeing people um, being willing to sacrifice and to open up their homes and open up their um, kitchens and um, bring on other families and other friends. And so a beautiful picture there. And I uh, hope that uh, maybe this week everything will get restored, but it's nice to be back, uh, being able to meet together. Um, we're going to be uh, um, looking at Psalm 25. If you want to turn there, we'll have the uh, verses up on the screen there. Um, and so um, we will um, uh, be looking at this idea of a posture of humility. Um, and uh, we um, are going to be um, looking at these different um, kind of um, uh, those rhythms that I mention a lot of times um, there as far as uh, conviction, that we have to have conviction of heart, and then we have to have um, confession of our sin. And so if we're convicted by our sin, and then we confess our sin, and then we repent of our sin, those are the three mainstays. We have to have those, and that leads to renewal. And then from renewal, from restoration with God, then we have this aspect of rest where we're learning to look back at what God has done. And now instead of me working hard and trying to do all these things myself, I'm resting in what Christ has done for me. Um, and then that leads to the next step of rejoicing in deeper worship. I love God more because I'm able to see what Christ has accomplished in my place. Uh, those songs that we just sang, um, Romans 6 is a beautiful picture. When I was meeting, you know, 15 years, 18 years of college students, it's really easy to kind of throw out there the Romans 6 stuff just to say, hey, your, your sin is deep and your sin is wide. And yet you feel like because you were born in the Bible Belt that, that God's just okay with that. And he's not. Um, this week, I just had, um, uh, not, not this week, in the last two or three weeks, just, just different friends that I would begin to talk to about some spiritual things. And very clearly, the wording was different, but the same idea was there. And so uh, one, one person was kind of talking, and they just said, you know, at the end of the day, you just got to do more good in the world than you do bad. Well, is that really at the end of the day what God's going to judge you on? Are you, are you really going to stand before God at a platform and say, well, here, I've got my list. Number one, you wouldn't remember them. And you're probably going to minimize and forget all the bad things and evil thoughts and evil um, in your heart, like that he's, he could be holding against you. So it's not a matter of me standing before God just saying, um, I've done more good than evil. Let me list those out for you, right? Um, uh, Hinduism. They will go with that a little bit. There's different um, gods that they believe will, will operate in that way. So that's why you have karma, right? Also, Islam, they believe literally that there's a little, um, um, like the cartoon thing, the little good angel on one side and a little bad demonic angel on the other side, and they're counting your deeds, good deeds and bad days. Here's what stinks about Islam. This is, it's clear in the Quran. Um, we studied Islam for a long time and thought we were going to be working in the uh, Muslim world. And so what's, what's crazy about Allah is they believe even if, your good deeds outweigh your bad in, in Islam. The judge, Allah, still may have a bad day. And like, you know, no soup for you. Just like you're, you're out. You're like, you're, you're done. Like you're, you're, that's a Seinfeld quote. And so um, the, the whole idea is like, you, you don't get in anyway. 
but my, my good deeds stacked up higher than my bad deeds. Too, too bad, you're, you're going to hell forever. That's Allah. Like, that's bad, you know? And so this idea of our posture before God is huge. And, and one of the first aspects of that is this idea of humility. And so we're going to look at that. Um, um, and so I wanted to also, as we're going through the Psalms, to use this time, uh, I know the Psalms are, are, are um, enlivening to a lot of people. If you're going through a rough time, sometimes the Psalms is a place people turn. They can also be confusing. And so I wanted to remind us, as you, if you're having your quiet time or devotional time, and you get into the Psalms, I wanted to kind of give, as we go through the Psalms, to um, give some teaching tools so we will learn how to learn from the Bible. And it's not just knowledge points, but, but let me um, learn how to interpret things well as I'm reading the Psalms. That may help you in your own quiet time. So um, some help concerning the Psalms. Um, first of all, it's just this idea that um, we have to look at all of the Psalms put together as pointing to God's overarching redemptive plan, right? So all the way from the Garden of Eden, Hey, he says to the snake, um, you, you know, you're gonna, your head is going to be crushed. One of Eve's offspring is going to come and crush your head. You're going to wound him. You're going to wound his heel. We're talking about what? The cross. But I'm going to overcome that. Here comes picture of Noah and salvation, right? And only a few are saved. Here comes Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I'm going to create a people that have a future hope in a future promised land, and then after the, David, after the kings start coming, David, Solomon, this idea, there's going to be a Messiah, an eternal king that's going to replace David, no longer just Jewish, but for all peoples. And that, re, that overarching redemptive plan, we've got to see the Psalms go into that. So if you're reading the Psalms, you're like, who is you know, this person? Who is this person? I don't even know what country this is. Just back up and look at the whole forest. Don't look at the one tree. Back up and look at the whole forest of that particular psalm, but also the whole 150 psalms called the Psalter. So it's God's overarching redemptive story. Um, a lot of people look at it as puzzle pieces. Um, the, uh, it's just this random thing. So when you're reading it, it can be confusing, but actually it's not confusing at all. Our, our English translations and transliteration do, do not um, fit with the Hebrew as far as the way that it flows. It made sense completely to the Hebrews. And so it's not just a, a piece of a puzzle that you're trying to you know, guess what, what this person means and what this person, who this is and where Israel's at and why is God seeming so angry at this time? Why are these psalmists crying out so much? You can look at it as, oh, there are people immersed in their own sin or immersed in really horrible situations and their hope is being put in God. And so um, there's deliberate patterns. And so I think I have another slide there, uh, the author's intent. Um, and so if you look at that, so, so a lot of the Psalms, um, like today's Psalm, um, it will have an alphabetic acrostic, meaning it will start with a Hebrew, not our American, but the Hebrew letters. And so the first First word of each line in Hebrew um, is starting with their Hebrew letter. It goes through a Hebrew alphabet, just like ours would be A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? And so the reason they did that was um, the people were separated in different places, in different little villages, and different little towns and communities. So how could we all have an understanding of God when we live in different places? Stuff? Well, well, through these psalms, we will um, make these little songs. So just think through... Um, our own alphabet. For little kids, what, what do we teach them? There, there's a little rhythm that goes with it, right? You know, you, so think through A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I. Did most of y'all learn that way? Maybe now TikTok is the way to do it and it's through some cool, cool rap thing or something. But whatever, whatever it is, that's what they did, except they did the whole song. So like Psalm 25, they would be walking for hours singing that together. And it was a way of singing about the Lord's praises and these times that we're in these difficult situations and we're looking to the Lord. So um, it, it's in the same way. It's, it's a way of um, them having order and a structure to it that in our English, it doesn't, when they transfer over from the Hebrew alphabet, it doesn't go. A, B, C, D, like ours, but still in the Hebrew. And you can see that, and it forms this chiastic um, picture there. And so that's what that picture in the, the bottom, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And so those things are, those are structures that we don't really see as clearly in English sometimes. But just so you'll know, when you're reading through that, looking at the overarching theme of, of the um, Psalms, 
the overarching theme of God's redemptive process. Um, the next slide is these are actually sofas. And so this was so deliberate and so accurate that these guys, this is even today, that's their job. Six days a week, 12 hours a day. If your dad and your grandpa and your great-grandpa and your great-great-grandpa and your uncles did this, you are blessed, you are honored by the Lord to have this job of sitting like this, like the picture, you're face down. And so when, when, they're, when they're looking at those letters, remember it goes from right to left. There's no punctuation. There's no periods or commas. Every single character, every single letter, they would count every single letter. And then at the end of that, they would write down 25. So if it's 25 characters, then they would go back and the little bitty accent marks um, called a yod and a tet. Uh, so when Jesus says later on, every, um, every tittle, well, if anyone takes away from every tittle from this, then, then they, they're doing harm to God's word. So these guys, the way that they did that, they, they would count every single letter and then come up with a, a total and write 25 characters out there. Then how many of the little accent marks? They would write the accent mark. Then they would go and count every word. And then they, and they would total that up on everything. And then guess what? You move on to the next line. Sometimes um, an hour, an hour to do four lines. And that's your blessed, fulfilled, hope-filled, gracious life. You're respected. That was the thing, to be in that order of people. So the, these sofers, the sofers, um, man, my mom, so my mom and dad just hard, hard workers. And so um, when... Uh, I grew up at 14, started working with one of my coaches. And so we would do all these yards and all this hot landscaping stuff. And, and any, any junk job that no one wanted to do, this old barn that was out in the field for like 70 years and had snakes and all kinds of stuff. And you hit one board and the whole thing collapses. That's the kind of jobs that I would usually get stuck with. And I would literally, when he would either pick me up or when I turned 16 and I'd pull over to his house 6 a.m. And he would literally turn to me and say, Sank. You're not going to like me anymore. And I just knew like that's going to be two weeks of working at this remote, huge farm of just, just miserable, hot, like nothing, baloney sandwich like at one o'clock and that's it. No water bottles back then, remember? No, no water bottles, no bottle of water, if you can imagine that. No cell phones, no, no iTunes, no anything, but just, just sweating and grunting and, and doing this miserable work. And so that kind of work, and then working different places and, and different, getting, getting different jobs. And my mom's answer for everything was always just harder work, harder work. Well, then you get into ministry and work becomes sitting, reading books and commentaries and, and writing out lessons and doing lessons for Wednesday night and for small groups and for... Um, uh, the, the sermons, and we were doing two different sermons at Grace, and so my mom would come and stay with us, and so I would sit down, and I'd, you know, like, hey, I've got to do a little bit of work, and, and so I would sit down and have, you know, two or three books out, and I, I've learned over time, I need blocks of time. I need, like, three or four hours to really get into it and, and really think. I can't do, like, a little 20-minute and then get up and do something, and then 20 minutes, and then do something else, and then 15 minutes. Like, for this stuff, I need to kind of immerse myself in it, and so my mom would, as soon as I would sit down, 20 minutes later, she would literally say, if I had my computer out, she'd be like, hey, when, when you get finished playing or whatever you're doing on your little computer, uh, there's something over here. You got a leak under your faucet. And I was just like, this, this is work. Like, this is work. It's kind of important work. And, you know, but sh to her, you're, you're, that, that's like break time. You're sitting down. You got a book. You got a laptop. You're playing on your computer. And so uh, these guys, this isn't play. This is, this is serious stuff. In fact, it was very honoring to be a part of that uh, privileged society. Um, they viewed it as a lifelong way of worship. And so um, it was considered one of the highest things. So then um, look at this next guy. So this next slide here um, is the, 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 that was modern. This is some of the things that they would do. So that was an idea there of, of ruling out everything else that Cuba that the guy sitting in, that was even taking it a step further. Now, God didn't say, get in this little box to do this, but this there's a whole sect of these type of people, and there was different forms of this. They would do different things. Sometimes they would go out into very remote places, but this was an idea of saying, this is so sacred. This is so important. I will uh, sit in discomfort because you're so worthy, and that's my job. So he's doing the same thing. Um, so uh, just think through that. There's over 304,000 Hebrew um, letters. Um, they counted rows, lines, letters, every yod and tet, like I said, the jot and the tittle. Um, and so why was that important? Why, why was it so important that they would go through this and count every single character? So think through what we start struggle with in, in our country. Here's, here, let me connect the dots for you. 
Does the Bible really mean that people, that a man and a woman, or is a man and a woman? It hasn't that lost its relevance? God just didn't understand the times that we would move to, right? Because I've got an aunt, I've got an uncle, I've got a friend, I've got a cousin. So God's word just didn't keep up with the time. We, we've evolved over time, we've changed. And so it doesn't matter about those things, right? That's what people would say. God said, no, no, there, there's no mistakes in it. So this is an issue of inerrancy, right? This is an issue of, does the Bible have errors? Did God not foresee far enough into the future? And man, you talk about a difficult time raising kids and, and, and it's where they don't make fun of or hate or mock or laugh at or point out or get on social media and, and, and throw some trash towards someone. And hopefully adult Christians don't get involved in that stuff. Like, how, how do you love your neighbor well and still hold to inerrancy? And to, how do you love and be graceful to people that, that want to say, hey, yeah, I just don't believe the Bible's true. I don't think that it, it, it allowed for the expansion of our evolution of mankind where now it's okay for this and it's okay for this. It's okay. Let's go back to inerrancy. If you can go back and trace that back for 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years and see that, oh, that was why that was important. God's word doesn't have errors. There wasn't a whole bunch that was just lost in the middle and they just pulled some pieces together. So God's wisdom is these sofares, these guys who, you know, 12 hours a day, six days a week. And then what was the last day? What was their Saturday? Sabbath, Sabbath rest. And so um, that's, that's what we get. So that's why where we get our Old Testament from guys like that. Um, and that, that's what they did. Um, the next section, uh, just a little bit about Psalm 25 in particular. There are, um, there are um, 25 different, I'm sorry, uh, Psalm 25 has three sections. Another thing that will help you as you're reading through Psalms is you'll notice parts where the psalmist is going into a prayer part, and then they will move into a, part, a creedal part or a creed. And a creed is just a, a repetitive statement. And it, what it was, it was spreading the same message that we could recite and learn. Um, it's, it's a creed about God, truths, specific truths that formed foundational truths about God. So the psalmist may start with a prayer and start with actually almost like complaint or, or just questioning. God, why have you left me? God, why am I in such despair? Why is this? Why does it seem like those that are extremely elite and rich, it seems like they have no problems, but yet uh, those of us who are poor and broken, um, who are supposed to be with God, why is it that we struggle and struggle and struggle? And, you know, there's like three, four, five, six verses like that. And then he turns to a point about, but I know this about you, God. Here's the creedal part. And there's this creed section. I know this about you, God. This is true about you. You do see those injustices. God, we know that you're holy. God, we know that you're right. We know that you see the brokenhearted. And so there, he's reciting back to God, we know this about you, which God was giving him. The Holy Spirit was saying, I want people to know this about me. Even though their circumstances are tough, here's the part that is unshakable. And so this is this idea. You can think of it like this. Um, our emotions are not necessarily always true, right? Our emotions are, they're powerful. They feel true. We have to go and get truth and go, I'm taking truth and letting it override my emotions. And so, I, I, and so these, these, please, God, where are you? You've forsaken me, God. God, I know that that's not true. I know that you are with me. I know that this is true. I'm letting truth now dictate my thoughts and my feelings. All, from little bitty things, a little one that's sick and you're praying about that, to relationship situations, to marriages, to children, to, to um, all kinds of difficulties in the world, like allowing God's truth to dictate over our feelings and let that control us. Um, and you can still have strong emotions and still, you know, hey, God, I'm still struggling with this. It's three days later. I'm still really worried. I'm still, still really depressed. I'm anxious about this. But I'm, I'm the creedal parts. God, I see how good you are. When I look at you and I see what you've done, God, it is a beautiful thing that you would take a sinner like me and that you would save me. It's completely undeserved mercy. And so we have to remember that. So um, this Psalm, Psalm 25, has three of those creedal, I'm sorry, has three main sections. It's got a prayer section in verses 1 through 7. Then it's got a creedal section in 8 through 15, and then a prayer section at the end in 16 through 22. So I hope that all, as we go through those, as you're having quiet times and you get into one of those 45-verse um, uh, psalms, and you're just like, man, this is a lot. You know, 
you may be able to see, oh, there's a prayer section there. Oh, there's a creedal section. I see now what, what, what's going on there. And here it leads me to a right response. So I hope that's helpful as you're, you're doing your own quiet times and devotional times. So let's read Psalm 25. Um, again, a beautiful section. You'll probably be able to see now, you'll be able to see those verses, the way that it changes and transitions. So to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Now this is David speaking. Oh my God, I trust in you. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For they have been from old, from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. So there's those first seven. Then notice this, these creeds, these truths that he goes into. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him who will instruct in the way, him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. So now here goes back into a prayer section. Notice it was, these are all these truths about God, and now back to a prayer area. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all his troubles. So, Father, we come to you thanking you that these truths are um, foundational elements that, that uh, not only the Israelites, but your church in the church age, after Christ had come and given his life as a ransom and raised from the dead and resurrected and, and ascended on high, we know that these are truths from the Old Testament that we can read and we can put our hope in and that we can rest in the finished work of Christ. And so David, as he wrote these, Father, was crying out for the Savior and the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, that he didn't even understand that you were sending. We get a full picture, God, of, of this, this cross, of the, the gospel message, and so would you help us to learn how to apply this in our lives that would lead to great, humble submission to you? In your name we pray, amen. So um, looking at those, um, you think through the idea of humility. So it's, you, you don't want to go to the Psalms and just go, hey, is there, was there one Psalm that's only about humility? So there's not really one. There's a lot of different Psalms. And I, I had, at one point I had some, I think I took it out of my notes, uh, of the different Psalms that talk uh, different verses about humility. This one has a couple of verses in there. But what, what you begin to look for is, well, what is humility really? Well, it's this actual um, posture of submission. It's a humbling aspect. It's so humble submission to God's way. And so Psalm 25 is one of the best on God's um, expectation of us for humble submission in our lives in every little area. Um, so um, think through um, going forward into the New Testament pictures of humility. So a couple that stick out very clearly, two of my favorites is, um, so in the in Matthew 5, so remember the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was unknown at the time. He had amassed a little bit of a following, but John the Baptist had been the main guy. And so this is Jesus' main teaching that, that comes out, his 
biggest and most famous sermon, the most well-read sermon that's ever been published, uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So remember the Beatitudes started out. And so in Matthew 5, he's got this huge crowd gathered, and you've got the kind of the elites over here and the religious elites and all these. And so, But you've got the, the crowd of just your everyday common folk, and they were always looking to their religious leaders to tell them, what does God require of us? And so, and they had a whole bunch of steps and a whole bunch of rules beyond what God had laid out in the scriptures, right? Remember, so the, the Pharisees had all these extra rules beyond the Bible's rules, right? And the, beyond the Bible's commands. And so here goes Jesus, and he starts out, blessed are the poor in spirit. And the word in Greek there was the picture of the lady laying out here this morning. So as we got here this morning, rough week. Think going in our life, like kind of busy, crazy week. Things are always tight financially. And you pull up here, and there's a lady laying at the front door entrance of your building to the church. And not only is she a young woman, she doesn't even have a top on. And thankfully, she's got a knife laying there beside her. Because whatever happened last night, she needed a knife. She only has one shoe. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's a paradigm shifter, isn't it? So the first thing we had to do was, hey, let's get the knife before we wake her up. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> Who knows? She's had like Taekwondo or something beforehand, you know? And so her first move is like, grabs that and, you know, stabs someone. So remove the knife and then gently try to wake her up as she embarrassingly is trying to pull her top on. So the picture that Jesus goes to this crowd of people was, blessed are the poor in spirit. These beggars that would sit down and have their head down, and they were shamed, and they knew everyone, would, little 13, 14-year-old boys would spit on them and laugh at them and mock them, and their hands would be shaken whether they were 20 or 30 or 50. But the poor in spirit, the Greek word, there's this picture of this person just holding out their, their hands shaking, just asking anyone, completely dependent, does anyone have mercy? Would anyone give me just a, just a couple of little coins? And so that's the picture. And these, this crowd of people, that's what starts out. Blessed are those type of people. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So think about the, the paradigm shift there. Blessed are the broken there. The broken in spirit. What that meant was a spiritual poverty a realization that I have nothing to offer. I'm not proud in what I know, God. I'm not proud in my own moral behavior. I'm not good in my lists of all the thing, rules I keep. God, I'm like this beggar that if you don't reach down and grab my hand as a Savior and lift me up, there's nothing. I'm in spiritual bankruptcy. And that's the first line. What does that do to that crowd of people that felt like I'll never make it to the Pharisees' level? Isn't that beautiful? And, and, and the beautiful picture is they don't know it's three years early. The guy telling them that is going to be the guy on the cross going, and I'm the one who's going to come and grab your hand. And every soul that looks up to me, I'm going to lift you out of that, your spiritual bankruptcy. What a beautiful thing that not only does he share that and breaks the paradigm shift, it's not these rules over here. Those who come and recognize their spiritual bankruptcy, you can do nothing to earn favor with God. So... That's a beautiful picture of broken spirit. We're often propped up by a lot of things in our lives that we're very proud of, right? Um, in churches, we can get really proud of our different things. Um, but God is saying, I'm not proud of those who are self-sufficient. I'm not proud of those who are independent and act like they don't need me. If you could see yourself broken like that, that's what I, I enjoy. Because you would see how great I am and how far off you could have been, but my salvation has come to you. And so um, that's a beautiful picture there in Matthew 5. Another one is a famous section in Philippians 2. Um, again, just when you're taking Psalm 25 and going, what does that look like from the New Testament? Um, Matthew 5, Jesus himself talking about, here's what this looks like, this type of humility before God, a neediness. And then Philippians 2 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. So, so how do you even do that? How do you do a few things out of selfish ambition? Just a few things. How do you do a, a lot out of selfish ambition? Isn't that third level? Isn't that what we're trained to do as Americans? 
do a lot out of selfish ambition. Well, a more humble person might go, do a little out of selfish, selfish ambition. And this says, do nothing, not one thing from selfish ambition. It kind of matches up with that poor beggar, doesn't it? Doesn't match up with what we believe, and it's, it's not saying it's not, not saying that if you ever do anything for your family, if you go get a job, and if you you have to have a house, you have to have cars, you have to have food, you have to have electricity. It's not saying those things are horrible. It's like you can still do all those things and still be so concerned about others and your love for God and for others. Because if you have a greater love for God, then all of a sudden others become a, a focal point. That's what it goes on to. Let, let each of you look not only to your own interests. I'm expecting you to look to your own interests. I know you're going to. That's why Jesus says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. I have no doubt that you're going to love yourself. You're not going to struggle with that. You're not having to be taught to do that. From, from a baby crying and screaming, you, you love yourself. You want food, right? And so all I can do is scream and cry because I can't talk yet. So from that early age, I'm going to take care of myself. And Jesus says, love your neighbor to the same degree that you are so concerned about yourself. This is what this says. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Because that's hard. That's humility. That's people who have so much, and they see people in need, and... But I, I, I just got to keep on going. I got to keep on storing up. What if? You never know a rainy day. What if accidents for our retirement, for our kids, for our grandkids? And right in front of them are people in all kinds of need. Look to others' interests. In humility, count others. Consider others more significant than yourself. Why do little kids, brothers and sisters, argue and fight? Because I count myself better in pride than you. Why do adults argue and fight? Because of pride. And I, I consider myself greater than you. Um, so counting others more significantly than ourselves, a beautiful picture of humility there. Um, this all fits into this idea of what does it look like if we're wanting to um, create opportunities for more humility, then we're going to have to take down pride. C.J. Mahaney has a book called Humility, and so the whole gist of the book is this idea of mortifying or killing. That word mortify just means to kill, to kill pride and to cultivate humility. So what can we do to mortify or kill pride and cultivate humility? Jesus himself, why did he come to serve? Because that's a, that's a way of killing pride, of being prominent and other people serving me, to come and serve and, and so to cultivate humility because I'm considering others more significant than myself all the way to the cross. And that's what Philippians 2 goes to is the, the foundation for you doing that is not just a decision you make to, to start doing things differently. It's no, it's rooted in what Christ showed us, what Christ lived out for us. So again, looking at what God has accomplished for us, sending Christ, exampling for us, but also the provision of that. When I look and gaze at that, and I see what God has done, it should create a posture of humility. Now a desire for me to kill that sin of pride and to um, completely do, do away with pride and then to cultivate humility. So um, if you understand the Bible and salvation in God, um, you'd understand that Jesus owns all things. I didn't, have, I didn't have, I had a slide that I took it off. But again, talking with people that are churchy people, a lot of times what comes out is if you could picture 20 little circles and some of you have seen that evangelism little tool where it's got the picture of what, what you share with people. is like, actually, if there was a throne of your heart, it looks like you're still sitting on the throne of your heart. You're the one in the chair. Have you all ever seen that evangelism type thing? It's like you're, you're the one on the throne, and other things in life are kind of encircling you. And what you need to do is you need to ask Jesus into your heart, is what people would say. And so then, but, but you, would, you would put Christ on the throne right? You'd put Christ on the throne, and now all of life is behind that. That's the most important thing. 
Well, a lot of people still have Jesus as just a one part. So my, my Monday is about work and about um, this stuff, my, uh, the stuff that our family's doing. And then and the, I've always got these hobbies and I've always got this other stuff going on. And so really just, just a little bit on Sunday for an hour and a half or two hours, that's the Jesus circle. But all these other 19 circles, they all have pieces. And Jesus, I mean, I, I think, I don't want you guys to evaluate it, but I think it's a pretty big circle, you know, but, but you know, anyway, he's one of the 20 circles. That's just a wrong understanding, it's, that, that he is everything um, and that he has provided everything. So submitting to God in that type of form is what, what we're asked to do. And so um, one of the difficulties is pride is so subtle that it masks itself as humility. So that would be a very humble thing to be a very um, biblical Christian. I just want more humility, so I just want to be more biblical, Right? Sounds really good. If, if I memorize more and more scriptures, and, just, and I, I even just talked like this all the time, and just quoted scripture all the time, just want to be a really humble, humble person. I, I can train myself to do that. And really, it's pride, spiritual pride, masking itself. If you've seen the, you know, the new documentary that come out with the shiny, happy people, even just the language that, people, that we're taught to talk in this type of language. It, it can be just a meekness. Uh, there are people that are kind of naturally quieter and stuff like that, and that, that's just their normal. They're not doing it for spiritual pride. Spiritual pride. If it's this, these little steps that you do that, that has, to have, it has to be this demeanor, and this is the only one that's godly, and I, I just speak Scripture, we've been surrounded by those cultures. It's a mean monster back in the home because um, that, that man or that woman controls that, and you don't break those rules. You don't. Break those, and man, I got to deal with those 18 to 25-year-olds. Um, and so, man, just some, some things that happen there and, and spiritual pride. So it happens in our doctrines. I've, I've said for 20 years, like if we happen to be right about our doctrines of grace versus these, just this idea of, you know, just anyone just can come and whatever and just make the decision. But if our doctrines of grace all right. If it does matter that you have elders and deacons in a church, if it does matter that you uh, preach expository passages, if it does matter that you're doing disciple making, if it does matter that you're doing um, these type things right, it should. If, if you're if you're actually correct in those things, it should only produce more humility, not spiritual pride. We're the only church that does these things right. We're the only church that's growing. And in some, some denominations, they measure spiritual success by how, how many seats, how many seats you're filling. And some, it, it's your doctrines. And are you doing everything so, so correct? And, and if it just produces more spiritual pride, it, it's, you've completely missed the point. If it doesn't lead to humility and love, then we've got a problem. It goes to social media. It goes to worship wars, the songs. Um, uh, we sang Reckless Love, which you know, just, just got trashed. Um, I promise you, the lady sitting on our steps out there, sleeping out there, she would understand reckless love. She would understand there's no way, God, in your holiness, in your holy, holy standard, your righteousness, that, that, that for me and what I've chosen to do and what my life looks like and all I've done and all the shameful things, there's no way you would approach me. There's no way that you'd even let me in, much less you come and pursue me. That seems crazy. It seems preposterous. It just seems reckless that you do it. Almost foolish that you're pouring out and pouring out all this grace and mercy that with all I've done, and you're not holding back. Like, well, if you get everything straightened up in your life, then you deserve my grace. No, no, it's unmerited favor. Just pouring it out. Just it seems just uh, just reckless in that. So that's the prodigal God story. That's the same word there. But man, we mock it. God, there, there's probably a hundred thousand blogs about how ridiculous, stupid, immature, and and unbiblical word reckless is. We mock it. She would mock it. Politics, church health, philosophy, um, all kinds of things. You've probably been around Christians who treat others so horribly because of this, this, this they think that they're better. We, we, we ran into it all the time where there's people who treat people better. And so what they're actually doing is their spiritual pride allows them to treat others worse than demons would treat people. But they're the ones who still think that they're the most godly. And so you may have been around that. So all of that is this picture of humility. 
And so as we look at those sections there, that verses one through um, seven, um, you can see there, I've got the, the slides on the one through seven there, that, that actual aspect there, it, it leads us to a different formational thought of God himself. Notice David's saying there, he says, I lift up my soul to you. And so the picture of humility for the Hebrews back then was one of a physical aspect where they stood up, they looked up with their heads, their hands would be uh, outstretched like this. So their arms up in the air, their hands outstretched, receiving. I'm dependent upon you. And David goes, hey, I'm not just lifting up my, my arms to you, God. I'm lifting up my entire soul, the deepest parts of my being. I lift up my soul to you, God, um, crying out that I am completely dependent upon you. Not just my physical, but my, my entire being. And so why would he do that? Because God is the only one who can answer those cries. Um, this idea of humility and submission to God is deeper than, than, than sometimes our American distracted, uh, half-hearted, independence-seeking, choose-my-own-way version of Christianity. So in, in, in our churches sometimes, it's taught. You just keep on going, doing more and more and more. You go out and kill with your job, and you'll go, go and do these three things for, for, for your your, your own success and for your own pride and all this. Churches teach people, you need more pride. You need more pride. You need to do better and better. You need to be the best one. You need to be the best at the pride, 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 pride. And here's, no, no, in other, in, in, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. It doesn't mean that you're not a good worker. It doesn't mean that you don't glorify God with your life. But in churches even, we're teaching people to have this attribute of pride that God says he hates. Never in scriptures are you going to find God ever, ever, ever going, you need more pride. He sees it as the enemy. And so um, we, we see David here crying out for this. We recognize the humility in verses two and three there. He sees God's godness and cries out for help as you are the one who's set apart that can rescue me from that. Um, in verses four through five there, in, in humility, notice what he says in verses four through five. Um, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you, I would wait all day long. Are you creating times for you to hear from God and to learn? What we, what we all want is quick lists. Everyone wants um, three easy ways to raise teenagers. Uh, four easy points to make my marriage better. Um, five easy points for better finances. Um, you know, whatever it is. And we want three or four, and there's just not any of those. But there are these aspects of, hey, slowly, repeatedly teaching your children to submit to God. And part of that is teaching them how to submit to your authority to where when they get older, now they're understanding God's authority. And again, if you, if you create a space where there is no room for anyone to ever make a mistake, Again, I got to deal with the 18 to 25-year-olds who, who then when they started making the mistakes, so this whole deconstruction thing, what's the, what's the theme of the whole millions of Americans deconstruction? I grew up in this type of church environment, and man, I, now I went through all this junk, and it's so crazy, it's so rigid, so legalist, and so crazy, so that can't be it. So I'm just out here doing my own thing with Jesus, and it's not even salvation. It's, I want to live my life. I want to love who I love. I want to do whatever I want to do. And so that's the whole deconstruction thing that's going on based on that instead of creating an environment where, hey, when you, I, I expect that you are going to blow it. I expect that you're going to sin. I, I don't say go sin and push you. I don't say go sin and it's okay. We don't care. It's I expect that you have a sinful heart. As an adult, as a, a, an adult Christian work, walking with the Lord for many years, I know you're going to sin. I want to teach you about grace on the front end where you don't have to give to temptation. I want to teach you what it looks like to turn and, and have repentance and see those tempting things and not just like if you ever, ever do this, you will never. And in those environments, that's where kids learn external and they're just parroting what the parents want them to say and parenting, parenting and parroting. And so that, that's this idea that and then it blows up later on and it's like, oh, there wasn't a heart change. It was just fear of and me learning to just do these things without a heart change. And so that's what's going on. He's, he's crying out there going, God, I need your guidance. Would you give me your path? So a beautiful picture. And then he turns to the creedal parts there in eight and says, why would I do this? Because God, you're good and you're upright. 
You instruct sinners in the way. So here's this overarching thing that even the Old Testament, they were getting a picture of salvation. They were getting a picture clearly. He leads the humble in what is right. The same thing that we see in Matthew 5 there. Um, He teaches the humble his way. The picture of that humble person that recognizes their spiritual bankruptcy. I'm in need of you. So now now you're a Christian. You proud? You proud of all the things? Do you still weekly, daily see yourself as that humble person? Still, after 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, are you still dependent and crying out to God with that hand? Like, God, I still need you just as much today. And if we're not careful, we, we just go along with the idea that, no, no, I've got it all together. I'm, I'm learning to do this without you, God, is what happens sometimes. Um, and so all the paths of the Lord are steadfast, love and faithful. So he sees this beautiful picture um, for your namesake, O oh Lord, not, not just for me, but for your namesake, for your glory, for your honor, would you pardon my guilt for it is great, just like the song we just sang. And so um, he, he paints this beautiful picture of humble submission to the Lord, crying at him in very, very clear pictures of salvation. Um, his soul shall abide in well-being. So there's this blessing that comes, this resting that comes. His offspring shall inherit the land. Um, my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. And so this beautiful picture of God rescuing, redeeming, and saving. And then that last section there, the prayer part again, he says, turn to me, God, and be gracious to me. So he notices, I am in need. Turn to me um, and be gracious to me. So what is grace? It's unearned favor. It's not based on how well I've done. It's not based on how good I've done. It's based on your mercy and your grace towards me. I am lonely and afflicted. Uh, The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. So you're going to get to periods of life where just just depression from circumstances, depression from situations, um, where you're you're just crushed by the weightiness of life, the difficulties of life. And you're going to have physical issues, uh, mental issues, uh, uh, financial issues, relational issues, spiritual, all those things. God, God doesn't say, if you're a Christian, I'm protecting you and we'll never let those happen to you, right? That's the prosperity gospel. I would never let that happen to you. No, in fact, I'm, I'm going to allow those things to make you cry out for me even more. And we don't want to sign on to that. We don't want to sign up for those, those, those lows and those valleys. Um, we, that's just difficult for us. So um, he brings out there this idea of, God, you're the one who can lead me through that. And then and David talks about his foes there, that he had many people. So he had literally people, literally people chasing him to kill him. And so we, we get in rough situations of, you know, what do we do here? What are we going to do with this? It's not, hey, what are we going to do with our kids? And by the way, there's people, if they track it, if they find us, they're killing us, a band of them. Like the, that, That's a pretty desperate cry. That's not like, eh, we're really struggling and just hard to pay the bills or we're really struggling, our kids' attitude. Like it's no, there's people on the other side of the cave who want to kill me. God, will you rescue me from this situation? That's pretty dire and pretty intense. And David is going, you're the one, God, who can do that. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. So this aspect of beautiful, um, humble submission to what God has brought him to. Um, So as we consider that, I mean, he gets to the very end there. And so David's been crying out all these things. And so just as we read in Philippians 2, considering others more significant than yourself, he comes back around and goes, not only me, Lord, but what about all of Israel? So you see um, this idea of loving others. You see this aspect of considering others more significant than yourself when he says there in the last verse, um, redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. So um, when you look at that, this picture that David walks us through from the, the, the parts of crying out in prayer to the creedal thoughts of being able to recognize that in God and then to um, go back to those prayers. The, the response that you have is of prayer. And so um, with um, our own um, lives, when we're going through these things, um, a good let me, let me close with just uh, maybe a couple of helpful, there's a whole bunch that we could list out, um, but just a couple of helpful ways of um, mortifying pride and cultivating humility. One thing is to consider that aspect. Are you having times where you are slowing down and having times of um, just uh, what I call um, uh, 
devotional life or times where you're, I call it like solitude and silence, where you're going before the Lord and not only just reading quickly, but reading and contemplating and interacting your thoughts and your heart with the Scripture. So that's that's this time of um, just um, concentrated time where it can be four minutes, it can be seven minutes, it can can turn into 10 or 15 minutes, but it's this aspect of of really considering the Scriptures and applying your, your heart to that. And so um, uh, times of, of looking through that, and, and so that's one thing is just, are you having regular rhythms where you're getting time alone? And so that cultivates humility. That's going to him and saying, I see this about myself. And, and then another thing is uh, pausing at the end of the day, um, is, is pausing at the end of the day and, and looking back. And, and uh, C.J. Mahaney calls it um, giving glory to God for what he's taken you through that day. And so thinking through, hey, God, this, this day. So pausing at the end of the night, you can gather your kids together to say, hey, here, look, look what God has done. Say, remember two or three days ago, remember Tuesday and Wednesday, we had this situation. We had this situation that we're kind of all worried about. And look, it's, it's Friday now. And look what God has done. And so taking time to naturally pause and ascribe glory to God for what he's done this last day, this last five days, this last six days. And so then that can lead to another aspect of pausing at the end and having a Sabbath rest and just going like, hey, this day, um, we're going we're gonna to go to church, we're going to gather together. It doesn't have to necessarily be a Sunday for you. It may be a Friday that you're off or a Monday or a half a day or whatever where you're going, I'm going to take this time intentionally to rest, and, and what I mean by rest is not like just recline or nap time, but to purposely, intentionally look back and, and attribute glory to God, thanking Him for what He's done, and going, man, if you provided for all those things, God, I want to ascribe glory to you for that. I want to thank you in my heart for that. And, and I, I'm trusting and resting in, in, in you for what's coming ahead Monday through Saturday of this next week. And so that's what, so Sabbath rest is one of those things. Um, ascribing glory at the end of the day, and then also um, just your times of solitude and silence. Those are three practices that are easy ways of doing this aspect of mortifying pride and cultivating humility. So I hope that um, Psalm 25 is helpful in that. Um, As Brad comes back up, let me pray. Father, we thank you for... um, just a time to hear from your word. We, the depths of your word are amazing. Um, we thank you that even in these psalms written thousands of years ago, you wanted us to see the picture of Christ, um, that, that Jesus connects the dots of the salvation that David was crying out for, his, his, his desire and his need to have sins forgiven, and you answered that. You gave us the reality of that. And so we thank you so much for um, that. We, we pray that you would allow us, as we're about to sing this song, give us clean hands and give us a, a heart that would be in submission to you and, and truly trusting and resting in you. Um, I pray that you would help us this week <clears throat> to learn to apply some of these things, to, to consider, are we a person seeing ourselves in, in constant need and dependence upon you? Um, are we a person that's broken in spirit over our sins and over our, our, our sins that we need to confess to you? Are we coming to you with those things? Is that cultivating um, the posture of humility? Father, it's so easy for us. Um, we, we're, we want to do well. We, we want to get approval. We want to get acceptance from you. And so we work really, really hard at that. We're not really good at resting in you. We're, we're, we're good at trying to work our way to you. And so, God, would you allow us to consider what humility looks like? Um, we thank you that our righteousness, our holiness is grounded in Christ, that um, it's not how, how good we do, but your grace covers all that we've done wrong, and that you would um, help us to learn how to walk in that, uh, to walk grace and truth, and help us to walk in this type of humility um, that's found only in Christ. Um, we thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.